Shall we just pray before we begin? Yeah, Father, we just love your presence. Father, we just love coming before you in worship and just experiencing something fresh of you week after week. And Father, right now, I just invite you to come. Inhabit the words that I speak. And Father, just stir us in our hearts to press in after you. Yeah, thank you, God. Yeah, Holy Spirit, just settle on us now. Fantastic. So today, um, I'm uh, doing the third in a, a sort of a, a rather extended series on, on worship. So I think the first one was back in August, probably, and then one in about October or November. And um, so here we are, number three. Um, so today, I'm going to be talking on the, the topic of worship in heavenly realms. So I think in church life, it's very easy to be, get caught up with the practicalities of what we do. You know, we organize, we make rotors, we encourage people to serve, we count bums on seats, we count the offering, we do all kinds of things. And these are all wonderful and really necessary things. And when we get them right, actually most of, them, most of us aren't even aware that they're happening. But they help us to function as a church. Um, but... There's a danger that we can sometimes get so focused in on the earthly things that actually we forget there's a huge uh, heavenly significance to what we do. Even in the admin that you know, Sarah and some of the people do in the office, there's a heavenly significance. And I think this is particularly true in the realm of worship. You know, we can sit and, or stand in our seats, we can sing the songs. Um, we can get caught up with, you know, it doesn't sound great this morning, and all kinds of things like this. But actually, we can lose, actually, the significance of what we're doing. Um, and there is truly a heavenly significance when we come together to worship. Now, there's this derogatory phrase that's come into the English language. It says, he's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. There's an idea that's kind of become prevalent in some areas of, of Christian life that actually pursuing the heavenly somehow uh, is um, going to leave us divorced from reality, is going to leave us in a place where we're not meeting other needs and, other, and things like that. Um, but one of my sort of heroes, I, I guess, C.S. Lewis said, in my opinion, it's because we so seldom think of the other world that we're so ineffective in our own. And certainly over my nearly 40 years as a Christian, I think what I've discovered is that actually the more I pursue the heavenly realms, actually the more effective I become uh, in the people that I meet day by day. So the scripture exhorts us to set a priority on heavenly things. So in Colossians 3, it says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's a verse that's kind of lived with me for many, many years. Setting our minds on things which are above. So what I want to do today is really to spend a few minutes just raising your eyes just for a moment from the earthly things and to consider the heavenly aspect of what we do as worshippers. 
So I want to begin by thinking about actually what do we mean by heavenly realms? Now, if you ask theologians, they'll probably give you lots of answers. I'm going to take a fairly simple view, but hopefully one that gives us a kind of a framework which helps us to understand the heavenly environments that there are. And as we look at Scripture, it's clear that there are different heavenly realms. Heavens is used in the plural in many places. So in the beginning, it said God made the heavens and the earth. Um, Psalm 108, verses 4 and 5, it says your love is higher than the heavens. And Ephesians 4, verse 10 tells us Jesus ascended higher than all the heavens, which again suggests there's more than one heaven. So there, there are clearly going to be some different heavenly realms. Now, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 describes a heavenly experience, and I think many of the commentators think probably this was something that Paul himself experienced, but he kind of tells it in the third person. And he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. And I know this man, and he repeats it again, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. Uh, so we have this, what's described as the third heaven by Paul. This is the place where God dwells, and we'll look at that in a bit more detail in just a moment. And if there's a third heaven, then perhaps by implication we might think there's a, a second heaven and a first heaven. So let's think about what these three realms might be. So let's think, first of all, this third heaven where Paul was caught up to. So let's begin just again with a couple of scriptures. In 2 Chronicles 2 verse 6 it says, Who's able to build a temple for him since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him? Even the highest heavens. Highest here isn't a geographical or a locational thing, but in terms of, I guess, precedence if you like. It's, it's the, the kind of the pinnacle. Jesus prays in Matthew 6 verse 9, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So he, God is dwelling in heaven. And this third heaven, um, I've, I've come to believe, is basically God's realm. Paul refers to it as paradise. It's the dwelling place of God. And it's the realm which is the seat of God's rule and in which God's rule is unchallenged. There's no sin or evil thing present. And we actually get some glimpses in the scripture of what this third heaven is like. If you remember Isaiah, back in Isaiah 6, he has this vision of heavenly places where there are angels and creatures all praising God. And he's pretty undone by this experience and he's commissioned from that place of presence. In the book of Revelation, again, we see glimpses at various points into, the, into this heavenly realm. And we see again that there are angelic beings there praising God. We see that the elders, the kind of the, the fathers, um, around the throne. And we also see um, the host of, of saints gathered around the throne and worshipping. So as Christians, we will be physically present there. But we're also told that we're seated in heavenly places with Christ. So even now in the Spirit, we can be present in this third heavenly realm. Huh. So 
This third heaven is God's realm. It's the place that he occupies. Of course, he's not limited there. We saw earlier that even the heavens can't contain him. But this is kind of God's domain. So what about the second heaven? Well, this is the realm of the fallen angels. In Isaiah 14, we saw... Uh, it says, how you've fallen from the heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. Talking about the expulsion of Satan from the third heaven, where he'd been one of the uh, lead angels who led the worship at the throne, and he'd tried to usurp God's praise. And so he was banished from this uh, paradise place. And with him, a whole bunch of the angels fell as well. And then in the New Testament, we see a whole bunch of verses which kind of hint at these um, fallen angels. So in Ephesians, Paul talks about these heavenly realms. So in Ephesians 2, verse 1 and 2, he says, As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So this is idea of these rulers in, in the... In the, in the in the air, in, the, in this other realm. Yeah. And then in Ephesians 6 verse 12, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So again, we see we have these fallen spirits who have uh, there's this heavenly realm which kind of contains, is, is their domain to an extent. So the second heaven is the domain of these fallen angels. But we should also note that God's angels can operate in this realm. And I believe that this is where spiritual warfare comes in. And we'll touch on that a bit later on. And we get a wee insight into this in the book of Daniel in chapter 10. And Daniel has been praying that he's, he's had this vision of an, an impending war. And he begins to call out to God. And he calls out and he calls out and nothing seems to happen. And after quite a number of days, he has this vision of an angel. And the angel says, says that he'd been sent in answer to Daniel's prayer, but that he'd been detained by the prince of Persia. And that ultimately, Michael, one of the other angels, had then come to fight with him to enable him to get through to Daniel. So again, we're seeing that there's this uh, sort of sphere where these uh, fallen angels have, have domain. But God's angels are able to act in that realm as well. And as I say, I believe that's the realm where spiritual warfare takes place. And then finally, we have the first heaven. And I believe this first heaven is the realm of man, the earth and its atmosphere. And this is our domain. God has made man to rule over this natural world. When we were created, we were told to go forth, multiply, and to subdue it, and uh, really to steward this planet. Now, man fell and ceded some of that, that power. But that's been restored in Christ. And it says in Romans 8, verse 19, that creation, creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. They're waiting for us to step into the destiny that uh, was won for us on the cross by Christ. And when we step into that fullness, we're going to redeem this realm. Amen. 
So we have these kind of three realms or domains. The third heaven, where God's rule is perfectly outworked. The second heaven, the domain of the fallen angels. And the first heaven, which is our earthly realm, which is really our dominion. So what I want to do today is just think a little bit about what is the um, sort of purpose of worship in each of these realms. So we're going to begin in the third heavens, which is always a good place to begin. (laughs) So worship in the third heaven is about delight. So I guess the first thing we need to understand to be able to experience that is that we ourselves are heavenly beings. So Ephesians 2 verse 6 tells us that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We are seated in heavenly places. And this is now. It's not sometime in the future. There's something in our spirit which has this connection with heaven. And Philippians 3 verse 20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven. So although we're present on earth, our nationality is heavenly. We're made for a heavenly environment. And the scripture also teaches us that the church is the gateway to heaven. Now, Andy's taught on this um, some time back now, but you know the story of Jacob in Genesis 28. He's out in the desert, he's traveling, he gets to this place, and eventually he lays his head on a stone. I think that's real hardcore camping. For that. Um, and he sleeps, but in his sleep, he has this dream of a ladder or a staircase with angels ascending and descending from earth to heaven. And at the top of this ladder, uh, God in himself is standing. And God blesses Jacob, and when he wakes up, this is what he says. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. How often can we say that? You know, sometimes we look back and think, wow, God, you were really there. Um, Surely the Lord was in this place, and I was not aware of it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So the church is the place of God, is the house of God, and therefore the gate of heaven. And I think I probably mentioned this when I spoke before. Again, in the kind of the Celtic tradition, which is uh, a very strong here, there's this talk of thin places where heaven kind of seems closer than normal, if you like. Um, places where people experience uh, something of God in a very special way. And in the past, these were seen as geographical locations, places like Iona and, and various places. But actually, I believe that actually individually and corporately, we are those thin places. We are, the, we are designed for this heavenly connection. And we are almost like, a, if you like, a portal into that heavenly realm. And notice Jacob says, how awesome is this place? I truly believe that the church is something incredibly awesome. When the presence of God is present, it's, it's like nothing else on earth. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we were designed for this heavenly connection. And... There are various places in Scripture where uh, people talk of this. I, I love David. He was a man who really brought, um, I guess, new covenant worship 
forward in, in, into the old covenant. What he established in the tabernacle was a place where no longer did you have sacrifices and all the rest of it, but there was just this continuous worship before God. And when you read in the Psalms, you see that he is clearly a man who's had some deep experiences in heavenly places. So in Psalm 16, verse 6, it says, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. He was clearly a man who'd had heavenly experiences. He'd experienced something of the, the deep love of God and that sense of exploring. And there's just you can never get to the end of uh, his, his love and his blessing on us. And in Psalm 36, verse 7, it says, How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For you, with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. So again, David's clearly experienced just something of this river of delights. He's... Uh, in, in his times just worshipping before God, um, come to that place of just knowing the love of God, washing over him and, and uh, stirring him to write these amazing words. So yeah, David was this guy who, uh, in Old Covenant times, somehow prophetically brought forward the, this experience, a New Covenant experience. So how much more as New Covenant men and women are those things available to us? So yeah, I firmly believe that these heavenly encounters are something which are open to us now. If we tune ourselves into heaven's frequency, if if we spend time just uh, allowing our spirits and Holy Spirit uh, to find that place of union, you know, we can come into these heavenly encounters. Now, I mean, I've had it said to me that you know. Worship can be a bit self-indulgent or whatever. But I would say that we are made for this. Coming back to the quote I had from C.S. Lewis, it's as we pursue the heavenly that actually we are changed from glory to glory. We're transformed by renewing our mind. And we actually become equipped in that place to bring Christ to this needy world. So worship in the first heaven is about delighting in him. And actually everything that we do flows out of that place. So what about the second heaven? Well, in the second heaven, the function of worship is the displacement of darkness with light. There are many examples of this in Scripture. Um, So... If we go back again to David, in 1 Samuel 16, we read that King Saul was tormented by evil spirits. And David was actually invited into his palace to play the harp. And as David played under the anointing of the Spirit, the demons would leave and Saul would be at peace. Worship has an effect on the spiritual world. It displaces darkness as we declare who God is and his truth, then we did a declaration, just speaking stuff. Again, in worship, as we speak and we declare, we actually displace darkness. Another example, Paul and Silas 
They were in Philippi. They'd been preaching the gospel. They'd been uh, arrested, beaten, and imprisoned in Acts 16. And it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing, singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Yeah. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing. In the midst of all their afflictions, there they are. They've been beaten they're, you know, in the middle of the night. And they're praising God at the tops of their lungs. I love these guys. And bang, God breaks in. He changes the spiritual atmosphere. And the prison doors are opened. Praise changes things in the heavenly places. And that in turn changes things on earth. Probably the most exceptional example for me is in the Old Testament. And it's a story that you'll know well. But King Jehoshaphat and the nation of Israel are there, and they're under attack by the armies of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And Jehoshaphat calls the nation to prayer and inquires of the prophet what he should do. So let's read a little bit of the story. It's 2 Chronicles 20, verse 14 and onwards. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite and a descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. Now notice, Asaph, he was uh, the guy who led the worship at David's tabernacle. There's a lineage here. There's this trace of worship coming down. So this guy who's uh, prophesying was one of the... Um, line of worship leaders. Yeah. And he said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Don't be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They'll be climbing up by the path of Ziz, and you'll find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground. And all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. And then some of the Levites from the Kohatites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And early in the morning, they left the desert of Tekoa. And as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. And after consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. And as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. So in the face of a physical enemy, Jehoshaphat here goes for kind of an unorthodox approach. Now, that's kind of what you get when you start consulting with prophets, I have to say. But uh, <laughs> we love our prophets. 
But you know, the prophets tend to kind of come from a slightly different perspective, often a, a heavenly perspective. But the power of praise is illustrated here. It's the de- faith-filled declaration of a God who is, oh, sorry, of who God is. So you know, they're saying, give thanks to the Lord. His love endures forever. And this declaration is the trigger for the victory to come. So, I don't know, worship team, whether you fancy this, you know, getting out in front of the, uh, the army and going and praising. It's kind of a bit of a vulnerable spot, maybe. But um, as, you, as we release praise, then victory comes. Now, it's interesting. They're not singing some song about being the army of the Lord. They're not um, hyping up or anything, but simply declaring the goodness of God. And I think we've actually lost something here. I think spiritual warfare in the church is something that's been um, maybe a bit misunderstood. We have this thing in the modern church that spiritual warfare is all about confrontation with evil spirits and binding and loosing and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, And there are times when there are individuals who are tormented by evil spirits and there are times when we do need to confront these things. But I have to say, much of what we've called spiritual warfare and deliverance ministry, I think has come out actually of fear and lack of belief that actually greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. We have kind of developed these methods almost to cover up our inadequacies. And I think we've become very aware of and very good at spotting the unpleasant things in our atmosphere. And very often, we miss the far greater power and presence of God. And we can be intimidated by these things when actually we carry Holy Spirit within us who has overcome the world. Amen. So I want to suggest that actually our faithful praises affect far more than any of these things. Amen. And as the passage we read says, the battle is not ours, but it's God's. And as we release praise, God releases his angelic being beings to bring order in that second heavenly realm. So our praise changes the atmosphere in the second heaven. It brings light and it displaces darkness. Okay, and then worship in the first heaven. So this is kind of the realm that kind of is most immediate to us, I guess. So the function of worship in the first heaven is saturation. (laughs) We are here to saturate the earthly realm with the possibilities of heaven. (laughs) We are here to saturate the earthly realm with the possibilities of heaven. We're called to bring heaven to earth. And again, this is something that Andy's really uh, taught us well on over a number of years. But the apostolic priority is bringing heaven to earth. And we need to get our our kind of our, our church structure right. And again, Andy's spoken about this. But we need to have apostles setting the agenda. In Romans 12, it tells us that God has placed in the church first prophets, sorry, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, etc. And again, it's reinforced in the list of gifts to the church in Ephesians 4. Um, Again, Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, 
evangelists, pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. But when we're in an environment where the apostles set the priority, then all of the gifts function at their optimum level. When we partner with the apostolic agenda, then all the gifts are activated. And they take on a supernatural dimension. Now the church has functioned with some of these gifts at a very human level, I believe. So we can be pastoral, you know, we can look after each other, we can be nice to people, and that, that's fine. We can teach, you know, we can study the Bible intellectually and we can um, get great truth from it. And again, we can evangelize and we can almost argue people into the kingdom. And I've done that before now. Um, but it's actually only when the supernatural, this heaven-to-earth dynamic comes, when we have this presence-filled element that these gifts truly become transformational. It's presence that sets us apart from the world. You know, we can do all these nice things, but actually it's the presence and the power of God that um, affect the world. So there's a phrase that's been going around that, you know, we have encounters to become an encounter for others. And as we do that, we're going to effortlessly reach this city and nation. So what does heaven to earth look like? Well, I guess we have to remind ourselves of what heaven it looks like. And all the snapshots we have, we've mentioned, you know, Isaiah 6 and Revelation. If we want to release heavenly atmospheres on earth, then we want to be uh, doing what heaven is doing. And what heaven is doing is worship. With an exception where I think there's recorded half an hour's silence. All the pictures we see of heaven are of worship around the throne. So if we want to release heaven here, release heaven's atmosphere, then we need to worship. You know, we're all carriers of the Holy Spirit and we're able to release God's presence around us wherever we go. God's plan for the planet is that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And how's that going to happen? It's going to happen through us releasing glory. <laughs> so I went out to Bethel Church in California for their worship school, I think about four years ago now. And while I was there, I heard a phrase which kind of really gripped me, if you like. And that phrase was, worship bigger than the room. Oh, I like it. Um, so, worship bigger than the room. And I think it helped me to understand some of what I've been a year aware of for many years as I've led worship. I've seen, with my spiritual eyes, often darkness being dispelled as we praise. And I've seen visions of heaven invading our city and nation. And actually, what what I've begun to understand is that as well as our kind of vertical worship to God, there's a horizontal aspect to what we do as well. That it's not just our interaction with with God, but actually we release something to people around us as we worship. So... In the New Testament, there isn't actually very much on worship. 
And I think that's probably largely down to David and, and what he did in terms of bringing new covenant worship into the old covenant. But there are just a few verses. Um, we know the verses well in, in John 8, um, where it talks about God seeking worshippers and their worship in spirit and truth. And then there's a couple of instructions in Ephesians and Colossians, which I just want to read quickly to you. So in Ephesians 5, it says, Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. The implication being that being filled with the Spirit is a bit like being drunk, but without the debauchery, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And then it goes on to say, from that place of being filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, from that place of drunk in the Spirit, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And then in Colossians 3, it says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you are called to peace. Be thankful. And whatever... uh, Sorry, I lost it. (laughs) Uh, let the peace of Christ, I'll start again. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hand, hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the first thing that strikes me is actually these two verses reflect the passage in John 8 where Jesus tells us we'll worship in spirit and truth. The first one is coming out of the spirit, being drunk in the spirit, being filled with the spirit and that leading us into worship. And then the second one says, let the word of Christ dwell in you, truth, richly as you teach, admonish, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So those two dimensions come together. But also there's an implication in in both of these verses that our psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are not only to um, minister to the Father, but actually to release something to those about us as well. So there's this implication as well as encountering God, we are impacting those around us. We're not only singing to God, but over one another as well. And again, there's a power as we declare truth over one another um, that will build us as a body. (laughs) I think this is something that will grow as we grow as family together. You know, this... um, I guess the gospel at its simplest level can be summarized as love God and love people. Jesus gave us these two commandments, love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and strength. And as we love God more, our worship to him is going to grow and is going to go to a new level. But also as we love one another more, then again, I, I believe this kind of horizontal aspect is going to grow as well. 
this will happen as we have a revelation that each one of us is the object of God's love and his delight. So how do we worship bigger than the room? Well, I believe it begins with an expectation and faith. We kind of use this word intentionality. Um, it, things do just happen, but actually, if you're intentional and if you have expectation, then you know, far more, I believe, will happen. So if I come expecting to receive something from me when I worship, I undoubtedly will. You know, God is good and he gives good gifts to us. But what if I come expecting something not just for me, but something for you as well? Or something for the people out in these flats out here? Or the people driving by in their cars? (laughs) We tend to direct our faith to receiving for ourselves, and that's good. But what if we're not content for God just to fill this place, but actually for him to spill out from here and to begin to invade uh, the atmosphere of our city? What if we begin to believe for the people driving by to be compelled to turn into the car park and find out what's happening here? I've heard some stories of that. I know in Toronto, at the time of the Toronto blessing, there were people who found themselves in church and didn't quite know how they got there just because the Spirit of God was there. (laughs) Now, our worship is first and foremost directed to God. and There's no doubt about that. But there are moments when we're triggered into this horizontal mode. It might be a lyrical trigger. You know, we sometimes sing, sing things which, you know, clearly haven't uh, fully happened yet. We, we sing that song, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, the earth is filled with his glory. Well, I wouldn't say it's quite filled with his glory yet. You know, we've got a little way to go. But there are these lyrical triggers sometimes that you think, actually, we're speaking something in faith here. Yeah. Um, and words create worlds. God spoke and he created the world. And our words create worlds as well. So, when we get into that moment, sometimes be intentional. And just ask God, release your glory. Begin to touch the people out there as well. You know, the atmosphere we carry is the superior one. We can create like divine radiation zones of God's presence. As, as we do, we radiate his glory, it, it tells us. And we can leave a deposit of glory wherever you go. One of the guys at the worship school you know, who uh, actually told a story, he, he, he was ministering, I think, in the Philippines or uh, that region, and he'd been staying in a hotel and doing this conference. And he came back to his hotel room one evening, or I think it maybe was during the day, and came back, and the maid was in his room, been cleaning and she was there in floods of tears and when he got talking to her he discovered that she'd been a Christian and she'd kind of backslidden and as she came in to clean his room she was just overwhelmed by the deposit of presence that was there and he went on just to lead her in restoration back to you know faith and so on but there's just that sense that everywhere we go we're leaving a deposit of glory We need to understand that actually, you know, we're, it says in, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians, that we're the aroma of Christ 